listening to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Tuesday, March 8th. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Escalating climate catastrophes, such as wildfire and our recent Snowmageddon episode, are inspiring rural communities to dust off their amateur radios. The California Report goes to El Dorado County to learn how a radio watch network keeps neighbors in touch when power and cell service fail. After regional news and weather, KVMR's Paul Emery and water guy Steve Baker digest drought policy. And Mark Cuniberti is here with Money Matters. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. A bill introduced in the state legislature would prohibit police from matching DNA from rape survivors to unrelated crimes. KQED's Alex Emsley reports the legislation follows a scandal in the San Francisco Police Department. Prosecutors, forensic pathologists, and victims advocates across the nation were shocked to learn SFPD misused a rape victim's DNA to arrest her for burglary. It was scary and actually quite chilling. Adriana Caldera heads the YWCA in Silicon Valley. It immediately made me concerned for survivors here in Santa Clara County. State Senator Scott Weiner says what San Francisco police did wasn't illegal. There is nothing in state law preventing police departments from misusing this rape kit DNA. So we need to fill that gap and prohibit this practice. Wiener's bill also calls for the state to study creating more oversight for police crime labs. For the California Report, I'm Alex Emsley in Oakland. A San Francisco supervisor says she's introducing a resolution supporting a campaign to allow young immigrants to legally work while they apply for humanitarian protections, known as Special Immigrant Juvenile or SIJ status. KQD's Farida Javala Romero reports. For immigrant youth to be eligible for SIJ status, a state court must first determine they were abused or neglected. These applicants, ages 16 to 21, often cross the border without parents. Because of visa backlogs and other delays, they typically wait several years to get a work permit in the U.S. That's according to a lawsuit calling on the Biden administration to speed up these work authorizations. One of the plaintiffs is René Gabriel Flores Merino. My life is extremely difficult because I don't have a work permit. Merino was granted SIJ status last year and enrolled in college, but he lives in a homeless shelter in Los Angeles. I'm kind of worried of how I'm going to pay for transportation from going to school because I don't have any ability to earn any sort of income. San Francisco Supervisor Mirna Melgar is calling on U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services to let these young immigrants work. We cannot open the doors to kids and at the same time deny them a way to feed themselves. USCIS did not return a request for comment. Yesterday, the agency issued new policies to make the SIJ process more efficient. Advocates welcome the changes but say they're not enough. For the California Report, I'm Farida Javala Romero. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Now with 834 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. Personal Capital, helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor. Personalcapital.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, 
just societies and opportunities for human achievement. California is investing billions of dollars in high-tech solutions to predict and respond to natural disasters. But residents in rural communities facing fires, floods, and winter storms are increasingly embracing an old-school technology, two-way radios. CAP Radio's Scott Rod reports from El Dorado County. The Caldor Fire exploded on a hot August night last year, and Eileen Strangfeld's emergency radio fired up. Extreme fire behavior is observed. We had no idea just how fast it was spreading or how big it was when it started. So we all just sat up and monitored what was going on on the radio. 69-year-old Strangfeld isn't a firefighter or in law enforcement, but she is a member of the El Dorado County Neighborhood Radio Watch Group. As climate change worsens and natural disasters increasingly threaten communities across the country, people are turning to amateur radio groups to receive timely, life-saving updates during emergencies. In rural areas, where internet and cell coverage can easily fail, these networks are proving essential. Strangfeld lives in Grizzly Flats, one of the first towns to be evacuated. Current mandatory evacuation orders have been issued for the following areas. I've always had a to-go bag. Also, we took all of the important papers, the insurance papers, Medicare cards, the passports. We simply put in a binder and we left it in the car. Strangfeld was always prepared to evacuate, but she credits the radio network for giving her enough notice to save irreplaceable belongings, especially mementos of her late husband, Ken. He never bought me jewelry. He made it all. He uh, did lapidary work. And since he was gone, there was no way I would ever be able to replace my jewelry. Her home, along with hundreds of others in Grizzly Flats, burned to the ground. Okay, so I'm going to send an alert, and you'll see what these radios do, I hope. Bob Hess helped start the El Dorado County Neighborhood Radio Watch three years ago. He's given me a tutorial on how the equipment works. If this were a real event, this is what our folks would be hearing. I met him on a hilltop where they set up a radio repeater, which helps boost their signal for dozens of miles. The Radio Watch Group launched after the 2018 campfire killed more than 80 people in Butte County. They acquire old radios off eBay. We'll buy these things like 100 at a time, clean them up, refurbish them, buy new batteries for them, and they're like brand new. The group has grown to about 350 members, but it faced some pushback at first. The general opinion uh, among law enforcement and uh, among the first responders was that we would create havoc in an emergency. Hess reassured them the group would only relay official emergency notifications, and they would stay clear of radio frequencies used by police and firefighters. Now the group has several former first responders on its board. Radio watch networks like this are popping up around the country. The pattern that we see is always in response to large-scale disasters or catastrophes. Joe Ames is national chairman of Radio Relay International, a nonprofit that works with local radio clubs. In New England, interest usually spikes after a major snowstorm, in Gulf states after a hurricane, or in the Midwest after a tornado. With so many amateur radio operators in the country, there are several hundred thousand at any given time, you have a good chance of contacting the authorities in case you need help. Over the holidays, the El Dorado County Radio Watch Network activated once again. The same area that saw devastating fire endured a walloping winter storm. The group helped stranded residents get food and firewood, as many in the area lost power and cell service for more than 10 days. For the California Report, I'm Scott Rod in El Dorado County.
and over the radio and online. That's the California Report for Tuesday, March 8th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. In regional news, the Nevada County Board of Supervisors took action today on seven items advancing wildfire preparedness. The county announced this afternoon that the board had approved nearly $850,000 in grant-funded contracts and programs for defensible space and community green waste events. That amount is in addition to up to $900,000 for storm-related cleanup and grant applications for more than $1 million toward hazardous vegetation removal. With today's board approval, the county will contract with the Fire Safe Council of Nevada County for Phase 1 of two programs funded by FEMA grants. The programs will provide defensible space assistance to Nevada County residents with disabilities, older adults, and property owners who meet specific low-income thresholds. Today, the board also accepted $150,000 in grant funding from the Northern Sierra Air Quality Management District to help homeowners address storm debris on their property before fire season arrives. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., county residents can drop off all brush, slash, and vegetative material generated by the December snowstorms. The drop-off site is at 12625 Brunswick Road in Grass Valley. The entrance is at Millsite Road and East Bennett. The Sacramento Bee reports today that state fire investigators have determined that the River Fire, which destroyed more than 140 homes last year in Nevada and Placer counties, was not set maliciously or by criminal activity. In September, Cal Fire announced that the wildfire, which started the afternoon of August 4th, was started by human activity in an overnight camping area at the Bear River Campground. The state fire agency said Monday that the fire started in the brush along the edge of Bear River within the site's overnight camping area, but not in a designated campsite. Here's the statement from Cal Fire's Nevada Yuba Placer Unit. After a thorough investigation, there is no evidence to support any malicious intent or criminal activity at this time. The report did not specify an ignition source, but noted that multiple people attempted to put out the fire shortly after it started. Also from today's Sacramento Bee, Sherry Papini, the Redding mother accused of orchestrating an elaborate abduction hoax in 2016, was allowed to leave jail today. U.S. Magistrate Judge Jeremy D. Peterson agreed with Papini's attorney that she wasn't a flight risk or a threat to the community. Federal prosecutors argued that Papini was a danger to the community and an extreme flight risk. Papini, age 39, had spent five nights in the Sacramento County Main Jail. Judge Peterson said he was concerned about her track record of alleged dishonest conduct, but Papini's large support network and lack of criminal history or substance abuse made her eligible for release under certain conditions. The B said those include surrendering her passport and firearms, abstaining from drugs and alcohol, and undergoing psychiatric treatment. If found guilty, Papini could be fined up to half a million dollars and sentenced to 25 years in prison. A wire fraud charge stems from her receiving $30,000 from the California Victim Compensation Board for therapy, ambulance services, and window blinds. Turning to regional weather, partly cloudy for the next few days, gusty northeast winds are due to begin Wednesday evening. This evening in Nevada City and Grass Valley, partly cloudy with a low of 44. 
Wednesday, morning clouds giving way to mainly sunny skies in the afternoon, with a high near 70 and a low of 37. In Truckee tonight, partly cloudy with a low of 21. Wednesday in Truckee, mixed sun and clouds with the chance of a few snow flurries, a high of 45 and a low of 13. In Sacramento this evening, mostly clear with a low of 40. Wednesday in Sacramento, mainly sunny with a high of 71 and a low of 45. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. With one month left in our wet season, the snows of late December are a distant memory, and a March miracle is looking unlikely. KVMR's Paul Emery and hydrologist Steve Baker drill down on California's water outlook, including Steve's advice for people with wells. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Steve, it's been a couple, three weeks since we last talked, and it's now March. So what is the state of California water at this point? At this point, if you look at our recent past, as far as precipitation goes, our principal reservoirs, they are, they've been receiving zero, absolutely nothing at all. And uh, you, would, you would think that, thinking back to last October and then the big snowfall after Christmas, that that would be a great thing. And it was at the time, but that is a thing of the past now. Uh, here's the current situation. Our snowpack here in Northern California, if you look at Blue Canyon, that's probably the best uh, part of our Northern California Sierra snowpack. It's 109% of average. That's great. But then the other portions are ranged between, in Northern California, range between 72 and 89% average. So we're, we're sitting a bit low there. If you look at the reservoirs, uh, Orville Reservoir is at 87% of their average. You would think after all that rain, we would have, you know, been better, but uh, that's not the case. Shasta, it's only at 57%. So, uh, and, and, and Folsom, Folsom looks good, 108%, but, you know, I don't know how many people realize this, but Folsom is a very small reservoir compared to the size of the watershed. And so they empty it and fill it a number of different times. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to see that it's, 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 a, it's 108% of, of its average right now. The entire Central Valley project, in other words, federal projects, they're at 63%. So we're well below average right now this year. We have one month left in our wet season, and we're told that a miracle march is not likely. So let's just see what happens. Well, we have a little bit of rain uh, this week, maybe three-quarters of an inch. Ah, we'll take what we can. Yahoo! <laughs> <laughs> um so this is our third year of drought. Yeah, it's, that sure seems to be the case. Our, our precipitation is now more extreme in both sides of it. You know, again, think, think back to October and then, and then December. And then what happens? Well, it goes back down to below average again. That's exactly what we've been experiencing. So yeah, third year, consecutive year of drought. It may be a common goal to uh, exercise conservation for all of us this year. What can we expect for, say, water policies? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I would expect what happened last time around, which was 2015, I, I'd expect the same thing. Uh, 
water restrictions, raising prices, that's sort of the more typical policy response. But in 2015, they did it different. It was a water budget approach. And the way that had worked is everyone was asked, as, as I'm sure many of our listeners can remember, that uh, you need to reduce your, your water use by 20%. Okay, we're all being told that. And if you don't, then there will be an additional fee for the water that exceeds that budgeted amount. That's how it was looked at. And then, then the comparison was made with whatever the water usage was for 2013. Well, there was pushback, as you would always have for, for things like that. Uh, some of it was legit, I think, and, and others probably not. But uh, some people felt that it was unfair because they were conserving in 2013, and now you're asking me to conserve 20% over what I'm already conserving, which was significant in itself. That was uh, looked at as unfair. And then there was the low-income individuals who use less water under any conditions because they don't have the adequate funds to pay for it. Now, that was uh, a very sensitive area across the, the state of California. And then the, the water users who have an abundance of money, well, they just use what they wanted. They didn't care. They'll pay the extra fee. And the attitude was, you know, or that actually the ultimate uh, view is that doesn't help our conservation efforts when you have people like that. So that was not... Uh, that was not a favorable outcome. Now, uh, Janine Stone and Patrick Johnson at Cal State University, they, they did a survey on the households at that time and, and this whole conservation effort. And what they found out is this. 70% of the people of the population stayed within their water budget. That is very good. Uh, people that did exceed the budget, they didn't exceed it more than something like $30 a month. So uh, I'm not sure what water equivalent that is, but it doesn't seem like it's over the top. So uh, we did pretty good in California when we had to in 2015. Uh, the water uh, use behavior uh, also they noticed was really consistent. It wasn't some certain demographic. It was households of all incomes, of all education levels, of all ages, and, and polit polit political affiliations. It, it didn't matter. We all did pretty 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 well you know it was homogenous across the board so the water budget approach really we found in 2015 was a much preferred way to go over the mandatory and voluntary water restrictions uh steve one one other question um this uh, water uh, uh shortage that you described uh, it has to do more with distributed water, such as, you know, water from NID or water from the cities. How about people with wells? What should they be looking at? Well, the people who have wells need to, in my view, and I've said this many a time, they need to know what's going on beneath their feet. So those water levels are, it's really necessary to know if you're getting yourself in trouble or not. And uh, all I can say without having a lot of data and evidence of this is that we are drilling deeper to find adequate water than the years past. And in the long picture, we are being affected by drought. And we need to be aware of that and not just not play a game in our heads about it. We are being affected. So we need to be careful on the water that we use. I would encourage people who have wells and also people who, who have city water to incorporate rainwater harvesting. Because when we get hit with water, rain, a lot of times in the future, it'll be a lot of rain. Let's fill up those large containers and use them later in the season. Well, Steve, thank you so much for the information. You're welcome. Appreciate it.
Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. Email him with your questions at water at operationunite.co. Coming up next on Money Matters, Mark Cuniberti examines the plight of the investor losing sleep over the stock market's prolonged downturn. What to do? Something called a fixed index annuity might provide one answer. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cuniberti. In times of prolonged market crashes, some investors grow wary of falling balances and the subsequent stress of seeing one's hard-earned savings disappear down the rat hole of Wall Street. Some may pull out altogether and only get back in after many months or even years of the next market rally, which lures them out of the shadows to dip their toes back in the market. This usually happens after the markets have run a long way up and the emboldened investor ends up buying at what might be the tail end of the next rally. This late-to-the-party investor unknowingly sets himself up for another shellacking when that rally fizzles out and turns into another crash. Rinse and repeat a few times and the investor ends up giving back even more money because he is unknowingly off in his timing of the markets. The stock market by nature will take back some gains from time to time and even gnaw into some principle if the market crashes are nasty enough. For those investors who lose sleep when times are bad, there is another way to possibly participate in market upswings, yet never expose their principal to a negative performance. A fixed indexed annuity known as an FIA is a product sold by an insurance company and is basically a contract between the investor and the company. The annuity in this example offers a 1% annual interest rate, tax-free for the entire seven-year term of the contract, which equals about 7.2% at its conclusion. 7.2% is not necessarily fantastic for seven years, but it is guaranteed and added to the initial principal. If the contract stopped there, I wouldn't consider it. But there is an added feature called market participation, and it works like this. When your contract becomes valid, it does so on a certain day, and that is your day. The S&P 500 stock market index is measured on that day, and 12 months later, exactly to that very same day, it is measured again. If the S&P index is higher, your account is credited a portion of the increase. Once credited, it can never be taken back, no matter which way the market goes in the next measuring period. So, if the market crashes by any amount after they've given you the increase, the money you made from the S&P in the first period is not taken back. Your account remains at that increased balance. Then they wait another 12 months and they repeat the process, crediting you with any increase but never taking away anything. If the S&P ends down for the next 12-month period, your account doesn't decrease a penny. They repeat that process every 12 months, adding a portion of the increase but never reducing it. At the end of the term, in this case it's seven years, you either get your principal back and the stock market participation amount or the principal plus the 7.2 interest rate they promised you, whichever is greater. There may be early withdrawal penalties, but they do allow you to take out up to 10% a year after the 13th month without penalty. There are no fees if you don't violate the minimum withdrawal limitations, and the contract is guaranteed by the underlying insurance company and not the feds. The participation rate can change on every 12-month anniversary, and annuities are not FDIC insured, like I said. Investors should review all the terms and conditions of annuities and 
make sure you completely understand how they work before investing. In conclusion, a fixed index annuity may be suitable for investors that want their principal and some rate of return guaranteed with no downside movement whatsoever in the balances. I'm watching the market so you don't have to, and that includes another Money Matters. This is not solicitation to buy or sell any securities and expresses my opinion only and may not represent those of this media outlet, its staff members or underwriters, nor any bank, brokerage firm, or investment advisory firm, and is not meant as investment advice. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com, where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name's Mark Cunaberni. That's our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30, it's Food Sleuth. Investigative nutritionist Melinda Hemmelgarn talks to environmentalist Nancy Alderman about how easy it is to be fooled by marketing for pesticides and lawn care. At 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. KVMR gets support from SPD Markets, serving Nevada County for over 60 years with locations on Zion Street, Nevada City, and McKnight Way, Grass Valley, offering conventional, organic, and local products, produce, also specialty food. Information online, spdmarket.com. And Alpine Aviation, since 1990, offering chartered and scenic flights with personalized schedules and destinations, plus flight instruction and aircraft rentals. Located at the Nevada County Airport off Loma Rica Road, Grass Valley. Flyalpine.com This is Joyce Miller signing off and wishing you a happy International Women's Day. (laughs) 